All right, today we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, um, starting in verse 27. If you want to open up your Bible or your app, you can go there. Uh, bring a Bible. There is a blue one that looks like this underneath your seat, and we're going to be on page 936. Um, and if, if you don't have a Bible at home, if you came, you're like, I don't have a Bible, um, that blue Bible is yours. I want you to take a pen. I want you to mark your name in it. I want you to walk out the door. Uh, that's really what it's there for. We have a ton, and we replace them. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, please take this. But um, uh, turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Um, and because we believe this is the word of God. Um, would you do me a favor? Would you please stand if you are able out of reverence for God's word and the message he has for us today. Um, stand as we read Mark 8, 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Right. All right. Thanks, Benjamin. Flourish and Grace, how are we? Good. Good to hear. Glad everybody made it here safely in the snow and in all the craziness. Hey, before we get into this text this morning, uh, real quick, I just want to talk a little bit more about Lent and some things that are going on here during the season of Lent. Lent, um, for those of you who've been around, right, we had our Ash Wednesday uh, services, the prayer gathering this past week. Um, this is a sweet time here at Flourishing Grace. And um, Lent is a season of prayer, it's a season of fasting, and it's a season of almsgiving, right? Traditionally, that's what it's all about. And every year here at Flourishing Grace on Easter, um, we receive an offering and we, we kind of put it out into the world. We say, man, we don't want this. We, we want to extend this to an organization uh, that's doing good things. And this year, we just want to, want to kind of up that a little bit and be more intentional. And so we've created a special fund called the Easter Renewal Fund. And so what we're going to be doing this Easter um, is we're, we are going to be very intentional, kind of beginning all through the season of Lent, praying and considering and asking God, man, what he might be stirring in us to release our grasp on, to, to, to give 
to, to those outside of our walls. 100% of our giving on Easter will continue to go outside of Flourishing Grace. It's not going to be spent in here. It's our largest offering of the year. And we say, man, let's use that to bless other things that are going on, other works of the kingdom of God. And so this year, this Easter Renewal Fund will have two recipients. Uh, one will be King's Cross Church. You heard Benjer talk about that. Austin Glenn is going to be planting King's Cross Church, Lord willing, in early 2023 in Farmington, Utah. And we want to be a big part of that. And a big part of that is going to be funding that. Um, and so there's, there's other churches and other people who are going to help fund that. But Flourishing Grace wants to lead the charge in that. And so this year's Easter Renewal Fund, part of that's going to go to uh, Austin in that work of King's Cross Church. Another part's going to go to an, a partnership of ours called Asha India, who is an organization that they're planting churches. They're working with local pastors on the ground uh, in kind of south-central India, outside of the city of Hyderabad, to plant churches and to extend justice. They're working with widows and orphans, and uh, clean water is a big part of what they do. Uh, working with these local pastors to, to put these clean water treatment facilities right on the land where their church is, so the whole village is coming to their place to, to get water, both, both water to drink and living water in the, same, in the same place. And so we're going to build some water treatment facilities through Asha, India, and plant some churches with them. And so um, I'm announcing this this morning for this reason. I want you to just begin to consider what might God be calling us to? What might he do if we became a people who said, you can have all that I am? And all that I have. And I don't want to cling to the things of this world. I want to cling to Jesus. And so I just wanted you to pray about that. Um, and as we kind of move towards Easter, we'll talk more about it. If you want to learn more, you can go to flourishinggrace.org slash renewal. You can hear more about that there. Make sense? Cool. All right. Um, here's what I want to do. It's been, it has been one of those weeks, if I'm just being honest with you. Uh, man, some things blew up in my kid's daycare. And so I've been like, I've had this kid all week long, like here, we did the, our Ash Wednesday gathering, we had a funeral, um, my wife's been out of town, it's just like nuts, right? And then the last gathering, I was, I was up here with communion, and I dropped it, like I dropped the body of Christ on the stage, and um, man, our pet's heads are falling off, and um, it's just one of those, one of those weeks. So, can I just pray real quick before we get dive into this? Let's pray. Jesus, come before you. I just confess right now publicly in this place, I, I have little, little to offer. Um, and so just, just declaring in this place, um, my need for you, Holy Spirit, I, I need you. I need you to move in this place. If there's going to be anything that good that comes from our time together this morning in your word, it's going to come from you, not from me. And that's true every Sunday. You've opened my eyes to that, and so I pray that you would help me to release my grasp and, and control, release my grasp on the need to do well or perform. I just lay it all before you and just allow you to move and allow you to work, allow you to illuminate your word and use it powerfully in our lives. Would you do that for us this morning? Um, might these be your words that I speak after you? Help us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Show us what you would have for us this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, friends. All right. So Mark chapter 8 is a significant text. Um, in fact, it is the text. Mark 8 is the um, kind of pinnacle of Mark's gospel. It, it's the climax 
of the entire gospel. It's the turning point. Everything in chapter 8 changes. The whole thing shifts up into this point. Uh, Jesus has been going about performing miracles, and he's been kind of telling everybody, hey, don't talk about it. You know, I I know I just cast out these demons, but don't tell anybody about it, right? I know I just raised your daughter from the dead, but don't tell anybody about it. And on and on and on and on and on, right? And and the disciples have been asking, and who is this guy, right? When they're in the boat and Jesus calms the storm, they're like, wait, who is this one that can command the wind and the waves? Like, who is this guy? Right? And we've been wrestling, Mark has intentionally been kind of laying that in front of us and saying, I want you to ask that question. Who, who is he? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Austin uh, preached uh, on the feeding of the 5,000. Right? And he was paraphrasing a guy by the name of Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung is a, uh, a Christian pastor and, and writer. Um, and he talks about how when we, 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 we approach Jesus, and, and as, even as Christians... We have our own agenda, and we constantly bring it and lay it on Jesus, and we kind of turn him and mold him to be who we want him to be, right? Rather than saying, who are you? We say, man, how can you kind of serve my agenda? And Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, right, there, there's the Republican Jesus, right, for the Republicans in the room. are like, man, yeah, we want that Jesus who is against tax increases and, he's, and against activist judges, and he's for family values and for owning firearms. Like, that's my Jesus, and then the Democrats are like, no, 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 there's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our, car- reducing our carbon footprint and for spending uh, other people's money or just giving money away. I'll take that. Um, there's therapist Jesus, there's platitude Jesus, there's revolutionary Jesus, there's guru Jesus. And Kevin DeYoung goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And, and Austin kind of used that idea and laid that on um, the feeding of the 5,000 to kind of say, man, who, who is Jesus really? And, and really pulled out, like, these attributes of Jesus, right? He's this uh, radical revolutionary um, and, and kind of these descriptions of Jesus. But the question still is, who is he? Who is he? And today in this text, Jesus actually poses that question to us. And he, the question is answered. And then he says, okay, yeah, that's right. That's, that is who I am. And then he tells us who you need to be and who I need to be if we're going to follow after him. And so that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. Who is he and who do we need to become in order to follow after him? And so we see this right out of the gate in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? Who do they who do these Israelites, who do the crowds, who do the, who do the Pharisees, and who do the people, who do they think I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, right? Some people think that you're John the Baptist, like reincarnated. Some people think you're Elijah, Elijah reincarnated. Others say you're one of the prophets reincarnated. And he asked them, okay, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he charged them strictly to tell no one about him. Jesus says, yeah, 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 you're right. But don't tell anybody that, okay? You, you finally got it, right? Up until this point, right, the disciples have kind of been, if I, if I may, they're kind of the idiots in the room, right? They're, they're the guys that just don't get it, right? They, they see him walking on water and like, who is he? I don't know who, who is this, right? 
but, they, but behind the scenes, they've been talking about this. And they've come to this place where they realize, man, he can be, there's no one he can be other than the Christ, right? From, from the time they're little boys, the disciples have been told that, the, that, this, that this Christ is coming, right? The Christ is, um, the word Christ, Christos, just simply means the anointed one, the, the anointed one. Um, and it really is, is the language for a king. The kings were anointed, right? Uh, king Saul is anointed. King David is anointed. King Samuel is or not Samuel, uh, Solomon is anointed. Right? Our king, the kings were anointed before they took their throne. Daniel was, or sorry, David was anointed um, long before he ever even took his seat on the throne. He was anointed by God before he ever takes his seat on the throne. He's anointed as king. And so the anointed one, the, the Christos, the anointed one. But when Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the anointed one, he doesn't simply mean you are another king in the line of David. He means you are the king. You're the king of all kings. You are the promised one. And the Israelites had a word for this. It was the Messiah. They look back and throughout all of the Old Testament, there are hundreds of these promises from God through the prophets of old of one who's going to be sent by God to restore the kingdom of Israel. And not just the kingdom of Israel, but Israel through the kingdom of Israel is going to rise up and is going to bring justice to the entire world. Their rule and reign will have no end. It's an everlasting, eternal kingdom that will be established by the Messiah. And from that point on, there will be no more injustice. There will be no more um, corruption. We will have a pure king and a pure leader that's been sent by God. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, this is what he has in his mind. And so kind of behind the scenes, the disciples have been processing this. I said a minute ago, from the time they were like little boys, right, their parents had been telling them these stories and these promises and been reading uh, these, uh, these messianic promises to them and telling them what this king is going to be like. But they also have a picture in their mind of kings, right? They have a picture in their mind of, of the kings of, of old and the kings that they've known, the kings they've heard about, these great Israelite kings that I listed earlier, but also the Babylonian kings and the Assyrian kings, and even now the Roman kings. And so when they think Messiah, they think king, right? Robes and opulence and armies and palaces and, and wealth and trumpets and all the pomp and all, all of that. That's what they think of. And so Jesus is, is not that at all, right? This is the guy that was born in a barn. This is the guy, he doesn't have a home, right? He's not any of those things. But over these years that they've gotten to know him, they're doing the math in their head and they're looking once again at these, at these messianic prophecies. And they're realizing, hang on a second. These prophecies don't speak of opulence. They don't speak of riches. They, they don't speak of any of those things. What if, what if he is the Messiah? What if he's the promised one? Let me show you a couple of these texts uh, from Genesis all the way back, all the way back. In Genesis 49, it says where this king is going to come from. It says, Judah is a lion cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up 
He stooped down, he crouched as a lion in a lioness. Who dares to arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, right? So where's this king, this Messiah going to come from? Early on, we have this promise. It's going to come from Judah. There's going to come a king from Judah, the tribe of Israel. From Judah is going to come this king. In Zechariah 9.9, this is a Palm Sunday Messianic prophecy. We'll read it again when we get there. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Right? Opulence, an army, a, a, a band playing and a palace and a massive chariot. No, 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 no. Your king is coming to you with righteousness and salvation and with this insane humility. All of a sudden, the disciples are they're like talking about this and they're looking at these. They're saying, I mean, do you remember these? Do you remember the messianic prophecies that your parents read to you? Do you remember the ones that your dad told you? Do you remember the ones your mom told you when you were going to bed? Don't you remember? Like, Ahab, this is him. He's the one. It's not what we created in our mind. It's not what we envisioned. But it is what God promised us. And at no point in time does Jesus, in the years that these disciples have known him, at no point does he kind of stand up and say, hey, you need to start treating me like I'm the king. Like, you, you, you idiots keep treating me like I'm your buddy. Like, you, you realize I'm the Messiah, right? Like, How about you just kind of show a little bit more respect? No, Jesus washes their feet. Jesus pulls them aside again and again and again and again and lovingly corrects them, lovingly teaches them, lovingly empowers them to go out and lead. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that, yes, Jesus is king. This is the good news. It is the good news that Jesus became king. That's the good news. He became king. And all of the gospel flows out of that. All of the implications, everything else of the gospel is an implication of that. That Jesus became king. You cannot be saved if he does not become king. You cannot have grace if he does not become king. Because he doesn't have the authority. The he must be given all authority in heaven and earth in order to extend that grace to you, in order to extend that mercy to you. He becomes king. Salvation comes from him becoming king. But he never acts that way. He never demands that from you. He woos you. He pursues you. He invites you to come and experience him, to come and see who he is. Come and learn for yourself. Some of you in the room are at a place kind of in your spiritual journey where you would say, man, I'm here. I'm, I'm curious. That's why you're here, right? You're curious. But I don't, I don't really know if I believe all of that. I, I don't really know if I believe that these prophecies that were spoken hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up. I, I don't really know if I believe that those are really about him. Maybe we're just kind of twisting those words and kind of applying it to him. I, I, I don't really know. Like, I'm here and I'm curious. But I, I'm just not sure yet. I'm, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. 
And I don't think Jesus wants you to believe that he's king because I say so. He doesn't. He doesn't want you to just kind of blindly accept who he is, right? People who say you just need to have faith and, and just remove doubt. Doubt is dumb. Push doubt away and just have faith. Those are people who are aligned to you, okay? That's just the reality of the world. Like, listen, if people say don't doubt, just blindly believe, they're lying to you. Jesus says, just come and see. Just come and see. He's not forcing you to do anything. He's not forcing you to bow down to him. One day we will. One day when he returns in the fullness of his glory, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king. We will know in that instant, in that moment, oh, oh yes, you were exactly who you said you were. But right now, in this moment, he is wooing you. He's pursuing you. He's saying, come and see. Come and stare at my life. Come and observe. And so maybe if that's you and you kind of fall in that category, as we enter this season of Lent, I want to kind of present a challenge to you in your life. Um, in this place, uh, we have about 35 days, give or take, um, until Easter. And on the Version Bible app, right, Y-O-U version, Version Bible app, there's like, I don't know, thousands of Bible reading plans. But there's a Bible reading plan in the Gospel of John, so it's a 10-day plan. And I wonder what it would look like if you said, okay, I'm going to get serious about this. I- I'm here, I'm curious, but I need, to come, I need to answer the question, who do you say I am? What would it look like if you said, okay, I'm going to commit to just reading the Gospel of John three times between now and Easter. I'm just going to look at the life of Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? How did he act? What made him tick? What made him the way he is? Right? And then I want to ask the question, who do you say he is? And my hope is, my hope is that you would come out on the other side of that saying, he's king. He's not just a king. He is the king, the king of kings, the ruler of the universe. What do you have to lose? Honestly, learn more of your Bible. Come out on the other side, you've, you've lost nothing. But what do you have to gain? Everything. Everything. If he is who he says he is, you have everything to gain. If Jesus is king of all, you gain everything. Second thing I want you to see this morning is this. Jesus says, I am the king, but I'm the king going to a cross. I'm king, and I'm going to a cross. In verse 31, he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. This is the first time that Jesus declares what he is going to do. Right? He's not predicting his death. Right? He's planning it. He's saying, this is how this is going to go down. I must go to the cross. I must. These things must happen in my life. Jesus declares plainly that he is planning to die. And he must die. And this is an extremely foreign concept. So these disciples who have worked so hard in their mind to kind of reassess all of these messianic prophecies and take all of their kind of preconceived notions of what a king are and push those away and come to the conclusion that Jesus is this king. Jesus is becoming the Messiah. He is the promised one of God. Now that idea, that concept is just blown up in their minds. 
right? This is why Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. No, 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 you know, no, stop. Because kings who establish eternal reign and rule, they don't get killed, all right? They don't get murdered. They don't go to the cross. That's not what kings do, right? The Messiah can't do that. But Jesus says, no, 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 I am the Christ, and I'm going to the cross. He says, I must, I must, there's no other way, I must, the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must rise again. Why? Why must he do those things? Why must Jesus suffer? Well, we talked about it a little bit earlier, even when we were receiving communion this morning, right? Jesus is going as a sacrifice, to, to fulfill all of the Old Testament sacrifices, right? This idea of the blood of bulls and goats was this established way of showing that sin, sin requires blood. That is how it's paid. It requires life. It requires, there must be a death for our sin. And so Jesus says, man, I must go and I must suffer. And what the disciples haven't done yet in their mind is realize that there's way more messianic prophecies than just the ones that point to a king. There are many that point to one who's going to come and suffer for the people. This one is from Isaiah 53. It's one of the most famous ones. It's written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And it says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And yet we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was was the chastisement, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus says, I must be pierced. I must be wounded. I must. He's going to fulfill the prophecies. He's going to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sin. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He says, I must be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Why? Why? You see, the, the, the rejection, the cross of Christ, is evidence that we need a greater king. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, these are the rulers of the Israelites at this point in time in history. These are the men whose job it is to, to fight for the justice of the people to fight for the right thing, to fight for the good thing, to stand up and against what is wrong and declare what is right. This, this is their job. And yet the moment they're given the opportunity, they'll sacrifice all of that, all of the justice and all the right and all the good for themselves. And this is what they do with Jesus. They, they, they condemn an innocent man. And then you have the Roman government that does the same thing. They're the ones who actually carry out the execution. This system of government, it's it's broken. It doesn't work. And what it's declaring is that there is no system of government. It doesn't matter if it's capitalism or communism. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's not going to solve the problems of this earth. 
This is all corrupt. It's all broken. There is no leader that you're going to someday elect and everything's going to go right. There is no country. There is no nation that's God's nation that's going to restore all the right things. And I know that's going to ruffle some feathers, but the cross of Christ declares that. And there's nothing that's coming for you. There's no human thing that's going to be created that's going to bring about the salvation of man. It's already been done. It's already been accomplished in the cross of Christ. We need a greater king. We need a greater kingdom. Jesus and Jesus alone can set up a perfect system of government, a perfect system of justice and human flourishing and love and kindness. America's never going to do that. Neither is any other country or any other leader. We need Christ he must be rejected to show us our need for a greater king. He must be killed. Why couldn't Jesus have just grown old and died in his sleep? That would have been a better story, right? That would have been, I don't know, sweeter in some ways. Like, why, why does he have to go to the cross and suffer this unbelievably brutal death? Like, why? Why? For me, this was the question that kind of haunted me when I, was, when I was growing up, when I was a little boy. I never understood. I was like, okay, I can, I can get behind it. I can believe that God sent his son. I can believe all that. But why did he have to die? Like, why couldn't he just be like, you're forgiven, right? I, I mean, when my friends hurt me, I just like, okay, fine. I, you know what? You're forgiven. Let's just move on with it. Like, I don't, I don't need to carry that around. Why couldn't God just do that? It wasn't until this turning point kind of spiritually in my life where everything shifted and everything changed when I, when I understood that only in death, only in this death, can Jesus show us love. How does death, how does his death show love? That, that's the question that changed my life. Right? My, my wife, Desiree, I love my wife so unbelievably much. I would do anything for Des. Right? And so if one day I just wanted to demonstrate how much I love her and I wanted to demonstrate how, how precious she is for me. And so I, I climb onto the top of the roof and I got a swan dive off and what does Desiree say? She's like, oh my goodness. That's the thing I've always wanted right there. Like that's the best. Okay, maybe she would. Um, no, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. How, how does... Death show love. Why do you have to die? Why do you have to be killed? If Desiree's walking across a busy street and our little boy Haddon tends to run away, he starts to run away, so she chases after him, and all of a sudden there's this bus coming. She doesn't see it, but I see it, so I run out, I push her out of the way, and I get hit by the bus. Now everybody says, I mean, that guy loved his wife, and his death is proof of it. If we're on a hot date and we're walking down the street and somebody jumps out with a gun and I push Des out of the way and I take the bullet, everybody says, man, that guy loved his wife and his death is proof of it. You see, every single time that when, some, when, when death shows love, the person is being killed. Because the, the person who's being loved is in danger of something. And, and the person who's doing the rescuing is stepping in in their place and is taking the death instead of them. This is what Jesus is doing for you, and this is what Jesus is doing for me. I'm in danger. It's my sin that has earned me the wrath of God. And Jesus is stepping in and saying, no, 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 I'm pushing you out of the way, and I'm going to take that instead of you. I will go to the cross so that you don't have to endure it. I will have the wrath of God poured out upon me so that you don't have to bear it. Jesus is stepping in my place, and he's stepping in your place. He must, he must be killed. 
But then um, he goes on to say, I must raise again. I must, be, I must rise again. Why? Why must he rise again? Is death of Christ not enough? It's the death that covers us, right? I mean, he pushed us out of the way. He died on the cross. Why does he have to raise from the dead? I'll give you two reasons. There's probably a hundred, but I'll give you two. N- number one, because he is the eternal one, right? He is fully God. He is God in the flesh, and his death is the, or his resurrection, I'm sorry, is the proof of that. It's the proof of that. If he doesn't raise from the dead, how do we actually know that I'm covered by his blood? I mean, the reality is, is that, I, right? So let, let's, say, let's say that I wanted to step in, right? I know Vinny here, right? Vin, Vinny's a sinner. He, he, he needs forgiveness, and so I say, okay, God, here's the deal. I'll step in for Vin, okay? I'll die in his place. God looks at me. He's like, I don't think you understand. Like, you're just as bad as Vinny. If not worse, you're both spiritually bankrupt. You don't, have any, you don't have any righteousness coins to spend. Like, you don't have extra righteousness to give to Vin. Right? You, you don't have it. You can't step in. But Jesus, being fully God and fully man, is infinitely righteous infinitely worthy. And so he and he alone can infinitely cover me and and have plenty more left to cover you and plenty more left to cover everyone else in this room and have plenty more left for himself to raise from the dead. He's infinitely righteous and infinitely worthy. And so he's the only one. And his resurrection declares that the infinitely righteous one laid it aside took up the cross and died in my place to extend his righteousness to me. The second reason he has to rise from the dead is because death can't hold him, right? He, he can't, it's, it's more of a scientific reason why. He, he just can't. He's God. Death can't hold him. It can't contain him. He's conquered death. Death cannot conquer God. It can't. Death cannot restrain him. So there's no way that he could remain dead. He must rise again. So Jesus declares that he is the king. He is the Messiah. But he's not just any king. He's a revolutionary king who's come to do something that no king has ever done. He's come to die in your place and in mine. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yes, I'm the king. And yes, I'm the king going to the cross. But then he turns to the crowd. He says, if you want to follow me, you've got to come too. I'm the king, and I'm the king going to the cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to you. It's the last thing I want you to see this morning. He turns to the crowd in verse 34, and he said, calling the crowd to him with the disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you try to gain your life, you're going to lose it. What is Jesus doing here? Um, The the Greek word for life here is the word psyche, where we get the word psychology. Psychology. Right? Jesus is not saying if you want to follow him, right, you have to follow him and literally physically die on the cross with him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you want to come after me and you want, you want to follow after me, 
Yourself must be put to death. Who you are must die. You cannot pursue any longer the things that the world say make you who you are. That's what's going to need to be put to death. Jesus is not calling us to physically die, but to rather lose ourselves in order to come after him. Here he's saying, don't seek to find yourselves in the things of the world. Don't let the world shape who you are, but rather put your identity on the cross. Put your identity on the cross with Christ and pursue him and him alone, not the things of the world. You want to know how you can tell if a religion is true or not? It's really very, 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 very simple, okay? It's really simple. Because all of the religions of the world fall in line with all of the cultures of the world. And they all do the exact same thing. They hold something up. They hold something up and they say, if you can attain this, if you can earn this, if you can climb the ladder and get to this thing, whatever this thing is, it's different for different religions and different cultures. But there you will find all that you are meant to find. There, there you will find whatever it is, salvation. There you'll find enlightenment. There you'll find whatever it is you're meant to find. Like that's who you're supposed to be. It's up here. Once you attain this, you'll be who you're supposed to be. Some put worthiness up here. They say once you've got to climb the rungs of the ladder and you can attain worthiness, then you have all that you're meant to have. Then you become who you are meant to be. Some put enlightenment up here. They say, once you can kind of reach that level of enlightenment, now you are who you are meant to be. You've found yourself. Some put knowledge up here. Once you can attain a certain level of knowledge or understanding, then you've become who you're meant to be. You've found yourself. Some put a position up here, a, a space, right? If you can just reach this level and this title, right? right? In Scientology, right? You just kind of get to the top and then that's who you're supposed to be. And then you can be like an alien or some, I don't know. I, don't, I can't understand it. I've tried. Um, right? And culture does this too. Once you make this amount of money, once you have this job, once you have this family, once you build kind of this legacy for your life and you have the right kids and your kids carry on your legacy, right? Then you've achieved it. Then you've attained it. And you're constantly putting something in front of yourself and saying, that's what I need in order to find life. That's the source of life. Worthiness, enlightenment, legacy, wealth, that's the source of life. Jesus says, man, if you, ch- if you chase after that life, you're going to lose your life. What does, it, what does it gain you if you find this life but you forfeit your soul? You forfeit who you actually are. Jesus, stop chasing those things. Put all of that on the cross and just come after me. Just come after me. Like, I'm going to do it all for you. I, I, I'm going to become, I'm going to give up my identity to give you an identity. You know, you don't have to chase after anything. You don't have to attain anything. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to hang myself on the cross to give you this identity. And the identity is right in the eyes of God. It's my work, not your work. I'm going to cover you in my righteousness and I'm going to extend the fullness of my love for you. I'm going to fulfill every longing of your heart and so that there will be nothing left and it will never fail you. All of those things will fail you. Eventually you find this place where you've actually gained all the knowledge you wanted to gain and then you get Alzheimer's and you lose it all anyways. 
You finally get to that place where you've earned, earned the title and you realize, I'm not actually an alien. I'm still who I was. You finally get to the place where you, where you find, you get to the right amount of money and, and then your company goes bankrupt and you lose it all. All of those things can fail you, but Christ cannot fail you. He will not fail you. He is the infinite, eternal one. He says, I'm going to cover you with my righteousness and my blood. I'm going to pull you in. I'm going to cover you in my love. And I'm going to make you worthy. You don't have to chase it. You don't have to pursue it. But you do have to leave all that other stuff behind. If you're going to come after me, you've got to come to the cross too. And as we kind of move into the season of Lent, I posed this question last week um, on Ash Wednesday. We posed this question. What exists in your life? What is the thing in you that you're saying, this is thing is important, I've got to have this thing, I've got to have this thing, but it's the thing that's standing between you and becoming more like Jesus. What's the thing in your life that can't exist anymore if you're going to become more like Jesus. What is that thing for you? I want to leave you this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis. At the end of Mere Christianity, which is C.S. Lewis's kind of um, most well-known work, this amazing, amazing work. At at the end of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis lays out this challenge to the reader. In the last pages, he says this. He says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. He's got this text in mind. This is what he's thinking. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes. Every day. And the death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've ever, nothing that you, nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. That's who we are. Keep chasing yourself, and that's what you're going to find. But look to Christ, and you'll find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in. All right, the good news is that Jesus is King. And if He's King, and He's King of all, if you'll look to Him, and if you'll find Him, Everything else is thrown in. All of, it, all of the rule and all the reign and the infinite worth and the infinite value, it's all found in Christ. There's nothing outside of Christ that you're chasing after. There's nothing outside of Christ to be found or bought or acquired. And so what are you chasing after? What's the thing in your life? What are you looking for? What's your chief aim in life? What's the thing in your life? that you've given yourself to outside of Christ. You say, man, I gotta have this. If I'm gonna become the person that I wanna be, I need this thing, this job, this status, this amount of money, this toy, this, 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 this identity. I need people to see me in this light. This, 
It's who I need to become. And you've given yourself to it, and you're chasing after it, and you're chasing after it, and you're chasing after it. And the whole time, the king of all kings, the one who holds all of the goodness and all the coins, is saying, I'm right here. What is keeping you from him? What in your life exists that can exist no longer if you're going to become like Jesus? chose this text for the first Sunday of Lent for that reason, where Jesus sets his face like flint on Jerusalem. He says, I'm the king, and I'm going to the cross. If you're going to come after me, you've got to come too. That's the whole point of the season of Lent. We say, well, what are you giving up for Lent? That's it. What in my life exists that can exist no longer if I'm going to come after Jesus? And the answer is everything. And some of you have done the work and you've given up things, you've given up things, you've given up, you've died yourself, but there's still more things. There's those last few things you've hidden behind your back and you said, man, I'm, I'm all in for Jesus, except for these few things. These, these are mine. We must be people who release our grasp and lay it all bare and become exposed and say, put it all on the cross because all I want is more of Jesus. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you just a few minutes where you are to just process that. To just be still for a moment. band's going to come out and they're going to lead us in another song in a few minutes but, but just before, before we sing what if we should ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in us the things that we're clinging to to show us the things that are standing in between us and Christ open our eyes to the things that we are have been unwilling to let go of. I love that Jesus says that we must lose it for His sake and the sake of the gospel. Because it's not just I want to give this up for Christ that I need the gospel in order to give this up for Christ. I, I need the gospel. I need, I need the spirit of Christ in me to empower me to release my grasp on these things. And so identifying the thing is not enough and saying I want to give it up is not enough. We need the gospel. We need the king to help us to release our grasp on these things. Let's go to him now. Let's ask for his help to identify them. And ask for his help to release them. Let's take a few minutes where you are.